The last few weeks, we've been in this conversation about the Holy Spirit, talking about how God's Spirit works and interacts and relates to us in our lives and especially in our everyday lives. Now, if that sounds a little bit too ethereal or abstract for you, honestly, I get it. Um, and, And the truth is, I actually think that God gets it as well, which is why I think part of why he gives us these pictures or these images or these descriptions in the scriptures, in the Bible of who he is, because he gives them to us to help us understand who he is and how he acts and what it means for us in our life. And so a few weeks ago, we started with this picture of the, the, the picture that the Bible gives us of the, of the idea of breath and, and talked about how to calm down and how to catch our breath and what that means for us. And then this idea of a dove and how God comes and shows up in the most beautiful ways to help show us the way forward when we're stuck or when we don't know which way to go. Last week, we talked about clouds and this idea of learning how to trust God with our life and with our future, which brings us to the final week of this series and the final image for this series that God gives us in the scriptures for his spirit, and that is the picture of fire. Now, as somebody who talks a lot for a living, like I love words, I love language, uh, but they're obviously constantly changing and evolving, especially when it comes to like the slang words and slang phrases that we use in, in our culture. And so I was reading this week, there was a, a study kind of survey done recently in, uh, in our country and uh, which they found 50% of Americans, which is, feels, this feels really high, and you, I don't know if this rings true for you, but 50% of Americans admit or say that they regularly use slang words or phrases that they don't know what they mean, um, which I think is pretty funny because I feel like there's a lot of old people that probably responded to this study. But the, the other thing that they found was that the words ghosted and salty and on point were the most well-known slang words or phrases across all demographics, no matter how old people were, no matter where they live. And I thought, man, that's kind of funny. Like those, I mean, those aren't like new words, but like Gladys, like 85 year old Gladys, who's on the way to like go play bingo. Like did her, she just like, I was going to go play bingo, but my the lady is ghosted. Like, how does, she, how does Gladys know what that, words mean, that word means? Well, I, but I think one of the dividing lines in our culture around age is how cringy it is when you use certain words or phrases. And the truth is, if you don't know, if you're not sure, like if I said this, I know kids say this, but if I said this, would it come off kind of weird or cringy or creepy or whatever? You're too old. Like if, if it's a question, if you're not sure, just don't do it. Just Stay in your lane, keep, you know, stick with words that you know. But one of the things that I know to be true for sure, no matter what the surveys, no matter what the studies say, is that when we use the word fire, like when we talk about fire, any number of things could come to mind in, in, because both literally and figuratively in our culture, we have all kinds of ideas built around that word, right? And we talk about people who have a fiery temper, we talk about, you know, she's on a real hot streak or he's a real hottie or we ate at that new restaurant and that place was straight fire or you should come to the party, it's gonna be lit, fam, you know, whatever. Like the speaker was dropping truth bomb after truth bomb and he was straight spitting fire. Like we, we have all these experiences and expressions around fire and depending on the phrase or the context, the meaning can be good or bad, but like I said, words and language are constantly changing. Which, by the way, is why we work so hard around here to try to help people understand the scriptures in its context, looking at what the people who were there and then, what they were like and what they would have understood, 
about what was happening and what God was saying so that we can actually understand in our context what God is saying to us right now here today. And so when it comes to this picture of fire, fire is actually the most used image in the scriptures as a description for God's presence, for God's spirit. And the truth is that repetition alone means that there's obviously something that God is really wanting us to get about him and about what that looks like in our life and how he wants to relate to us in this conversation because he says over and over and over again, he's referred to over and over and over again, his presence, his spirit as being fire. One of the most famous places, at least in the New Testament, is found in the book of Acts chapter two. So we're gonna read it together uh, as we dive into this conversation, try to pick it apart and understand it. So it says this in Acts two Chapter one, I'm sorry, uh, verse one. On the day of Pentecost, by the way, quick little aside, if you're new to church and you have heard the word Pentecostal to describe a certain group of people or a certain denomination or a a way that, you know, uh, you understand, you know, people that are like charismatic or they speak in tongues, whatever, that whole term Pentecostal actually came from this moment in this story. Okay, so on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or like tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them that ability. And at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were confused and amazed because they heard their own languages being spoken by the people who were in that room, by the people, the believers that were in that room. So quick little backstory to this moment. This day, this experience, this moment occurs. It's it's only been about two months, just shy of two months since Jesus had been crucified and resurrected, and things were still very tense and very chaotic in and around the city of Jerusalem because there were stories and sightings and rumors of sightings and rumors sort of flying around and people who had seen him alive and is he alive and I don't know and was it real and is it true? People that had talked to him and felt the scars and had all of these experiences. Like the, 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 the scriptures actually tell us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people from the time that he was resurrected till, the, till this, this particular experience. And so all of the disciples, all of Jesus' followers, they were all still extremely nervous. So they had been kind of hiding out, sort of moving their meetings around, gathering in secret at different times and different locations. And they really, really want to continue this thing that Jesus started, but they're scared and they're intimidated and they honestly have no idea what that would look like or what to do or where to even start. And so they get together in this tiny little room and they start praying and they start asking God for help. And as they're praying, the whole house is filled with this, the noise of this massive windstorm. And then these flames of fire appear on everybody's head and they start worshiping and preaching and sharing their faith with people that they don't know. And some of them are doing it in languages that they hadn't spoken. And the whole situation is so noisy, causes such a commotion that people come running from all over the city to see what had happened. Because that's what we do, right? When there's a noise, when there's, there's a, something happening, when there's a commotion, we're just like, what's going on there? People kind of rush over to see it. Um, we, we, all, we all do that. We, uh, my family and I, we actually lived in Las Vegas um, from 2002 to 2004. And one day we were down at the forum shops at Caesars Palace and we were just kind of walking around. Actually, it was just 
um, Hansi and I and Jaron, our oldest son, was just a, a baby at the time. And, um, and, and we were walking around and there was this, off in the distance, kind of over to the side, there was this huge, like these noises and people yelling and screaming. It sounded like a fight and people started rushing over there. And it was just this massive chaos and the crowd started building. And so I was like, that. I think there's a fight. I told my wife, I think there's a fight. I'm going to go check it out. I want to see people fight. And so she's like, you're dumb. I'm just going to keep going over here. And so I ran over there to see this fight. And as I ran up, it was not a fight. It was stupid Michael Jackson walking around the forum shops with all of his big beefy bodyguards. And people were like, oh, Michael. Tried to like talk to him and take pictures of him. And he walked through and his giant mountain people were like shoving people out of the way and yelling people. And then he went into FAO shorts and they shut it down and kicked everybody out. And, and if you've ever, I don't know if it's like this because it was a long time ago, but it used to just be all glass in the front of the store. And this huge crowd just pressed up against the glass to watch Michael Jackson walk around and shop for toys. And it changed their life. But that's what we do, right? When there's a commotion, which is like, what's going on? We go check it out. When you notice, but what I want you to notice is when you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the movement of Jesus in the days and weeks and even the years after Jesus left, it's that this moment that we just read about, this moment right here is actually the moment that changes everything about how the story is going to unfold. It changes everything that comes after it. Because the disciples go from being afraid and not knowing what to do and hiding out and keeping whatever it is that they have to themselves to actually then after this, moving out into the world and loving people and serving them and declaring who Jesus is and what he did. And even to the point of allowing themselves to be martyred and killed for the message and for, the, for this thing that's going, for this movement. It's striking the difference that happens because the, 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 the fire changed everything. So there's a lot for us to dive in here um, as we go along, and we will. But the Holy Spirit showing up as fire here had a direct connection to an experience that a guy named Moses had way, 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 way back, about 1,500 years before this moment in the Old Testament near the very beginning. So check out what happened with him in Exodus chapter 3. It says, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses says to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. So he goes to check it out. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. So, just so you're tracking, like the disciples in the story in Acts, you may not be familiar with the story, but Moses is hiding out. Only he's not huddled in a room somewhere. He's out in the middle of nowhere in a desert. And he's out there because he had murdered a man and now he's been on the run for 40 years. And he's out tending his father-in-law's sheep. And one day as he's out in this desert, sort of herding the sheep one direction, he looks over and he sees a bush that's on fire. And that's not all that unique or interesting, especially if you're in a desert that's really hot. But what gets, eventually gets his attention is that despite being fully involved, despite being fully engulfed by the fire, that the bush itself is not being consumed. 
And I, I think it probably, like I can imagine that it probably took a little while for him to notice that part. He's like herding the, the sheep. You look over, oh, there's a bush on fire. Okay, keep going, keep going, go over there, spend the afternoon. They're coming back. Whoa, that same bush is on fire. Would you look at that? That's pretty interesting. Okay, keep going. A couple days later, they're grazing this way. What the heck? That bush that's been on fire, it's still burning. I'm gonna have to go check it out. Like, I think it probably took a little bit of time to get his attention. We don't know, but here's what we do know. Moses walks over there, and as he's approaching this thing to just out of curiosity go check it out, he was completely oblivious to what was really going on. He had no idea where or who God was in this moment. He wasn't expecting to have an encounter or a conversation with God in any way. And while he only went over there to check it out because he was curious, it was not a coincidence at all. It was God getting his attention. And what I love about this is that when Moses, it says that when Moses simply looked God's way, when, when it finally clicked and Moses didn't even know what was going on yet before he'd even had this conversation with God, when he just looked over there, when it finally got his attention, that is the moment that God called to him. I love that about the story because the same is true for us. Like you may be oblivious to the activity that's go, of God that's going on around you right now, right? You, you may have no idea where or who God is in this moment in your particular experience in this season of your life. You don't have to know all the church stuff or the Bible stuff or the Jesus stuff. You might simply be checking out church or God. You might just be simply curious about what it's all about. But it's not a coincidence that you're here because God is trying to get your attention. And if you will simply look his way, he will meet you exactly where you are. And he'll begin to speak to you. And probably like Moses, it'll freak you out a little bit. The story doesn't end there. Verse seven, God's got some things he's wanting to say. So he says, the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, uh, my people Israel out of Egypt. Now, if you've heard this story or you know this story, it's lost on us or we've forgotten what an unexpected plot twist this part of the conversation is. Because God's like, okay, I got something I want to tell you. Look, I have heard and seen the oppression of the, and the cries of my people, which are your people, Moses. And Moses is like, yes, this is amazing. It's been four, 500 years that they've been in slavery. Awesome. Okay, tell me more. Tell me more. And God's like, oh, there is more. So I have come down to rescue them. And Moses is like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to hear what you're going to do. Egypt has no idea who they done messed with or what's about to hit them. Tell me what you're going to do, God, because you've come down to rescue them. And God's like, lean in. Okay, here's my plan. Pack your bags, Moses. You're going to Egypt. You're the one that's going to lead them out. It is the ultimate like record scratch moment because it is the last thing that Moses expected to hear and the very last thing that he wanted to hear. 
See, the truth is, is that God is not in, ignorant or indifferent to the problems or the suffering or the pain or the, just the mess around you. He's not ignorant or indifferent to the problems or the pain or the mess in the world. But God's plan for addressing all of that stuff is you and me. See, people are always God's strategy for changing the world. People are always God's strategy for healing what's broken. People are always God's strategy for cleaning up what's messed up. And it's not because he needs us, but it's because he always chooses to show up with skin on, with flesh and bone. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't do what only he can do, of course, Right? If you know the rest of the story of the Exodus, right? or if you go home and read it, God does miracle after miracle after miracle. It doesn't happen if God doesn't do his God thing, but he does it all through a person, through the man, through Moses. See, because of God's love and power, you and I, we've been accepted. We've been made alive. We've been saved from ourselves and our past and the brokenness and the sin and the wet mess that we've made of our lives. But the same love and power that saves us is the same love and power that assigns us. If you have been saved, you have been assigned. See, yes, God loves you for you. Yes, God came for you. But part of following Jesus is coming to grips with this reality that he has a purpose and a mission for your life or something to do because there are no spectators in his family, in his movement. None of us get to opt out. If you've been rescued, if you've experienced God's love and his grace, he has something for you to do in the world. So what does Moses do? Well, he's freaking Moses, right? We know what he's going to do for crying out loud. He parted the sea. We, of course he's going to step up with boldness and confidence. But that's not what he does. He does what we would do. First thing out of his mouth is, whoa, 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 whoa it's time out. Why, why, why me? Why, why are you asking me to do? Why did you choose me? And then he starts giving God this huge t- list of reasons of why, God, why God's plan is a bad plan, right? This is a bad idea, God. I, you got the wrong guy. You went to the wrong desert. You lit the wrong bush on fire. I am not your guy. And he's got all the arguments for why it won't work. And he's like, you know, I'm afraid. They, you don't understand. You don't, you, do you remember when I killed that guy? I'm a fugitive. He's afraid he can't do it. He's afraid of what it'll cost him. Just like us. He's like, I, I can't go do that. What are you talking about? And God's like, yeah, I, I know you can't, but that's why, that's why I'm gonna go with you. That's why we're gonna do it together. That's why I'm gonna be with you every single step of the day. But I, I, don't, I, don't, I, mean, but I don't even know what to say. And God's like, don't worry, I got you. I, I'll tell you, like, I, I know exactly what you're gonna say. This is what you're gonna say. And he tells them, this is the script you show up to Pharaoh, this is what you say. Well, what if the people, they don't even know, they don't trust me. Well, this is what you say to them. See, just like this moment in the book of Acts, this particular moment is how one of the most significant and epic stories, one of the most significant and epic moments in history, the exodus of the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. This conversation is how it all begins with the fire of God helping one man overcome his past and his fears. 
See, I don't want you to miss this because in both of these stories, you have people who are scared and are hiding out. The disciples in Acts were afraid that they were gonna be killed because that's what they did to Jesus. Moses was afraid of going back to Egypt because he would be killed because that's what he did when he was there last. In both stories, God's spirit shows up as fire. And in both stories, that moment changes everything because that's what fire does. See, Jesus described it this way in Acts chapter one, verse eight. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See, if you are not a person of faith, if you maybe believe in God, but you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, the single most important conversation you will ever have or God will ever have with you is about his son, Jesus, and what he's done for you. But if you, have, are, you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have, you've had that conversation, you've put your faith in him, I think this is one of the most important conversations God wants to have with you. Because the most repeated instruction in the scriptures, it isn't, hey, y'all need to stop sinning it isn't you need to get your act together. It isn't come worship me. It isn't you should start pray. You know you should pray more. It isn't any of the spiritual stuff that we would think it is. It's do not fear. It's the most repeated command and instruction throughout all the scriptures. It, it's, it's something that God says to humanity over 200 times. Something he says over and over and over and over again. Why? Well, because you and I cannot be who God created us to be if we're living in fear. See, in this series, we've talked about how the Holy Spirit comes as breath to calm us down and restore our life and as a dove to bring us peace and give us hope and as a cloud to give us clarity and direction. But he shows up as the fire to give us power and courage to actually go and become who he's created us to become, to go where he is leading us to go. Now, Here's the confusing part for me, and maybe you can relate to this. The confusing part about this to me is I don't really feel afraid very often in my life. Unless a spider is on me and then I panic and scream and like a little girl. But I'm talking about in life in general. Like, of course, I have moments of fear like everyone else. You know, I have little worries and anxieties here and there. But most of the time, probably like yours, my life just feels normal, right? There's not really a lot for me to be afraid of. And that's the problem. See, what in my experience, what I've learned is that fear is a master of disguise. Fear wears a mask. And it likes to dress up most often in my life like reasonableness, like responsibility and being practical and let's not get carried away. In my life and faith, one of the ways that I know that fear is winning is when I'm not really ever afraid or overwhelmed, which I know sounds completely counterintuitive and ridiculous because how can fear be winning if I'm not afraid? Well, here's what I mean. Most of the time, me not feeling afraid or overwhelmed isn't because I'm living this life that's of incredible faith and courage. It's because I'm living a life that requires neither of those things from me ever. It's because I'm living a life that where I've got it down, where my life is small enough, where I can feel mostly in control, where I can feel like I can do it all on my own and I can make it happen all on my own, where I've whittled my faith and my dreams and the risks that I'm willing to take. I've whittled those down to where I'll only attempt things that I'm pretty sure I can pull off. I'll only do what's comfortable and what, what I'm capable of spiritually. And so daily life doesn't really take very much faith 
to live like that, if any at all. And that is the definition of living in fear. See, we think not living in fear means that we're never scared. That's not what it means. Because when you dare to live a God-sized life, he will regularly lead you to do things that make you uncomfortable. He will regularly lead you to do things that scare you. If you're not doing or attempting anything in your life that scares you, your life is too small. So God will always lead us to that kind of life because you will need God's help to live a life that's loving and sacrificial and dream-pursuing and difference-making. You will need God's help to become who he created you to become. I, I used to think, and I don't know if this is the case or not, but I used to have this conversation with God all the time because I'm like, God, if you wanted me to do that stuff, you should have made, you should have made, made me a little more courageous. Because I, I used to think like, I don't know if it's a character trait that we're just sort of born with, but look around and it seems some people just kind of more naturally courageous. And the truth is for me, like I'm kind of a natural born coward. Um, I'm not much of a skier. I used to ski a little bit more than I haven't skied in years, but I used to ski a couple times a year. My brothers and I would go and we lived in Northern California and I wasn't great, but I wasn't terrible. Like, I was just okay. Like, I was a solid blue square guy. You know what I'm talking about? If you've been skiing, um, I was, I'd wait, get out of here with the yellow, or with the green circles. But I'm definitely not going black diamond, and there's double black diamond for psychos. And so I just stayed. Blue square is my lane. This is what I'm doing. Well, one year we decided to go skiing. My brothers invited me to go, and we went. Uh, in the Sierras, and um, we got there early. We were the first ones on the lift. We're, we're like looking at the map, and they're like, hey, let's just go to the top. And then I was like, yeah, but that's, that's, a, that's a black diamond. And they're like, no, but see, look, like right there, you could like peel off and do the, you know, you could take that run, and that was the blue square. I was like, man, I'm telling, I don't want it. No, no, no. And they're like, come on, you, look, you just, you know, we'll help you. And so we take the, I was like, okay, fine. Like we go to the top, we get off the lift and we're at the top of the mountain and the wind is just howling like 65, 70 miles an hour. I mean, just snows blowing in your face and, and it is terrifying. And what looked like a little bit of space on the map, the blue square was way the heck down there. And they're like, all right, man, we'll see you at the bottom. And they all take off. And I was like, what the heck? And so this is normally the part of the story where people are like, and then I just sucked it up and I bombed that sucker, man. I just took it like, no, no, that's when I unclicked my skis and I put them together and I sat down and, with, and I did the, the butt scoot of shame down about 500 yards to get to the blue square because that's who I am, right? I, I'm, I'm not necessarily particularly courageous, but here's what I know. You cannot get where you need to go if you are stuck or frozen and afraid, right? But when you actually begin to follow Jesus, he will always take you to places that you never could or never would go on your own. God's spirit will give you the courage to choose his mission and declare his message and then the power to then go live it and do it and become it. 
And it's not that you're not magic, you know, you're like magically not afraid anymore. It's that you're given something that's bigger and stronger than just yourself and your fear. Because that's what God wants to do for you and for me. I heard somebody say one time that courage isn't the absence of fear, it's the absence of self. And I love that. Because the truth is when the more that I look to and lean into God, the less self-conscious I become. And when that happens, people begin to notice and they get curious because it's not normal, right? It's not different. When God begins to lead you into places that are uncomfortable, when you begin to take risks and people are looking at your life going, whoa, what happened with them? What happened to her? What happened to him? This is not the person I knew. People begin to look, which is actually what happened in the very first story we read, right? Where people ran to check it out. And they can tell when they all arrive, they can tell that something has happened, but they didn't think that it was God. They weren't just like, oh, God showed up. That's right. That's what today is. No, they, they, they were like, this is, they thought it was something else because there is something else that if you consume enough of it, it kind of makes you brave and unafraid and seem stupid on the outside, right? Alcohol, woo. That's why we call it liquid courage which is the assumption that the crowd made that day. In Acts chapter two, verse 13, the crowd who came running, they get there and they're like, oh, this is stupid. It's just a bunch of drunk people. They ridiculed them saying, they're just drunk, go home, nothing to see here. But Peter, the guy that's kind of in charge, kind of leading the group, he has the best comeback ever. In Acts, a couple of verses later, he says this. He says, these people aren't drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's much too early to be drunk, right? And somebody yelled, yeah, but it's five o'clock somewhere. No, I added that part. That's not, that actually wasn't said. But Peter goes on to say, right, where he, he's just like, These, they're not drunk. Like, it's, look, we're not above being drunk. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's 9 a.m. We're not total degenerates, all right? You guys, this is something different. And then Peter goes on to explain, right? He goes on to say, this isn't what you think this is something that will blow your mind. This is something that came from somewhere else. This is God. This is fire. This is God's spirit being poured out on people's lives. And that's what God wants to do in your life and in my life, bring courage and power. This imagery of fire is all over the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it's quoting a verse from way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse four. And it just says this straight up, declaration that God is a consuming fire, which makes sense because that's what fire is, right? It's consuming. It engulfs things. Its effects are irreversible. Whatever you throw into a giant fire will be absorbed and consumed by that fire, leaving only the fire. And what's interesting though, is that in the Old Testament at different times, God is described as fire in different ways, consuming different things, whether it was the story we read about the bush or there's one about the tabernacle or there's one where God shows up and, and, uh, and consumes this altar where they're making sacrifices. But in the New Testament, we're told over and over and over again that the thing that God wants to engulf is us. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse one, this guy named Paul wrote these words. He said, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is true and proper worship. And, and the image 
when he wrote those words, the people reading it, the first thing they would have thought of because they came out of a sacrificial system was sacrificing an animal on an altar and then lighting it on fire and watching it burn. That would be, they would make a sacrifice that way, right? And so he's giving the image of a sacrifice that's being engulfed by fire. This idea that the Holy Spirit burns up everything in us that isn't like God so that's all that's left is his heart and his character. And then, he, and then he says that, but we're not like the old system. We're not like the other sacrifices because those were dead when, they, when the fire consumed them. But we, we, are, we are a living sacrifice, meaning that the presence of God is burning in you, constantly doing its work. It's purifying what's inside of us, our motives and our desires and our intentions. And it's refining what comes out of us and how we talk to and treat and interact with people around us. And it gives you all the power and all the courage that you need to begin to live like God created you to live and become who God created you to become. Because God always empowers us to do the things that he inspires us to pursue. And by the way, if you're here and you are a Christian and you're just like, yeah, I kinda know all this stuff. I mean, I, yeah, Jesus, woo, yay God. This is not about having a relationship with God or faith in Jesus because Moses had a relationship with God. The disciples were followers of Jesus. They could not have been more literally that. They had faith in him and yet something was missing in the story. And so God comes down and gets their attention and his spirit comes as fire. But It wasn't just something he did for them back then. It's what he wants to do for you and me right here and right now. So in our family, um, we're not big campers. Uh, pretending to be homeless temporarily isn't really my vibe. But we do have a fire pit in our backyard. And every time we have a fire, there's always a moment where you have a decision to make, right? Where you've built it and stoked, you sat around and talked, you've enjoyed it. You've watched it kind of burn down. And now you have to decide, are we going to build it back up? Or are we going to let it burn out? which is obviously one of the first things that you kind of learn about fire when you're a kid, right? If you don't feed it, it will go out. And so this is kind of where we're going this morning. That's my question for you is if you are a person of faith, if you are a Jesus follower, how are you feeding the fire of the spirit of God in your life? Are, are you paying attention to it at all? Or is it just kind of on autopilot? Is it something you just sort of ignored and take for granted because it's going? And I, I'm not talking about like religious stuff. I'm talking about the fire of God that's in your soul. Because you, you can't get the effects of a fire, the heat and the light and the power, all that, without actually feeding it and fueling it. So I, I wonder for you, what, what, what is it that God wants to do in your life? What's the thing that he's been trying to get your attention about? What roadblocks are there that you can't seem to get past? What steps have you been too scared to take? What paths have you been too afraid to pursue? I wonder what conversations that you've been too nervous to have, what forgiveness that you've been too afraid to give. See, God's presence, his Holy Spirit in your life begins to change all of that. The guy that wrote that verse in Romans that we read a second ago, in another book, in 2 Timothy, he wrote these words. He said, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. For God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-control or self-discipline. 
And there it is again, all those ideas, courage and power and love connected to this idea of fire. And so he says, stoke the fire, fan the flames. In other words, part of this is taking action on what God has already told you to do. Because when you do, you, you, it's like breathing life into the flame that's in your, it's in your life. See, the, the spark of God in you is God's gift to you. But what you grow that into is how you respond to him. It's your gift to him. It's ultimately your life being a gift to the world. So stoke the fire, feed it. What is it that God's already asked you to do that you've been resistant to step, in, step into? What, what is the, the good that is bigger than you that requires risk and faith that God's been nudging you towards or you've been sort of dreaming about and wouldn't it be amazing? And I'm really passionate about that, but I, I'm just one person, what could I do? What have you been putting off? What family members do you need to have conversations with? What neighbors have you been meaning to invite but chickened out? Whether it's baptism or giving or serving or fostering kids, whatever it is, what is the thing that you're like, I know it's just been in there, but I've just been pushing it to the side. And you have all the excuses and, and fear has disguised itself and practicality and reasonability and all that stuff. And so here's what I want you to do. Here's the thing that I'm gonna invite you to do this week. Every single day, just begin the day having a conversation with God, thinking about the good that you already know that God wants you to do. And instead of stalling and making excuses, instead of waiting on more signs for more clarity or confirmations or confidence or resources or whatever, you just take a single step in that direction. You just make the phone call. You just do the search. You just sit down with that person. You have the, whatever it is. Because when you just look in God's direction, he'll meet you in the middle. And you will see what incredible things that he has waiting for you in the fire. There's one last little wrinkle to this. The imagery of fire for us is a pretty stark one. It feels, can almost feel like <clears throat> when you start to think about God and what his invitation and the life he created, it almost feels like this harsh thing that God is just command, trying to control and command. Um, and, and that's what drives out the fear. Uh, but the scriptures actually tell us that it's God's perfect love that drives out fear. So that when the fire shows up, it's not an angry God. It's not a fiery God who's come to just burn you down to a crisp so he can get you in line. It's a God who loves you and whose love drives out fear. Would you pray with me?